Hello and happy 2023. We are back after a short winter hiatus and ready to jump in and get started. So in this week's episode, I tackle a pretty dark, intense subject, which is genocide and ethnic cleansing. Stay tuned. So here we are in the first episode of 2023, and as I said in the intro, it's going to be a little bit depressing, and as I plan on covering some hard topics, uh, definitely listener discretion is advised. So I decided on this topic of ethnic cleansing because I just got back from a 10-day trip around the Balkans, and after spending several days in Bosnia, it really made me think about not just the 1990s ethnic cleansing there, but also... And I'll talk about that later in the episode, but also various ones around the world and some current conflicts that are going on. So let's get started. Um, So first of all, what is ethnic cleansing? So interestingly enough, there is not exactly an official definition um, that goes to ethnic cleansing. Ethnic cleansing has not been recognized as an independent crime under international law, so there's really no, again, no exact sort of outline that is going to say exactly what qualifies as ethnic cleansing and what doesn't. A United Nations Commission of Experts mandated to look into violations of international humanitarian law actually commented um, about this and specifically around, you know, former Yugoslavia and and everything that went down there. And they essentially said in their report that, quote, rendering an area ethnically homogenous by using force or intimidation to remove persons or given groups from the area, end quote. So essentially, again, they haven't come up with exact, exact definition, but it's any type of removing a civil, essentially a civilian population, whether it's by force, torture, rape, assault, etc., and anything that's going to directly target a certain group of people. So a lot of it also too falls under um, genocide as well. So even though it's not completely 100% um, defined, there's always a lot to debate in terms of, okay, what qualifies as ethnic cleansing and what doesn't. In this episode, I'm going to look at three examples of what I consider to be ethnic cleansing, and that is in Ethiopia, Myanmar, and Bosnia. So starting with Ethiopia, definitely a country that I've always wanted to go to. I know several Ethiopians, and I've I when I did the National Geographic DNA test uh, nine years ago, it said that I had ancestry from that area in Ethiopia and and neighboring Eritrea. So it's definitely a dream of mine to go. And um, sadly, it's been an area that's faced a lot of trauma. For more than than two years, there's a largely invisible campaign of what many consider to be ethnic cleansing that played out in Ethiopia's northern region of Tigray. Older people, women and children were loaded into trucks, they were forced out of their villages, men were herded into really overcrowded detention sites, a lot of them died of disease or starvation, torture, and in total several hundred thousand Tigrinians had been forcibly uprooted just because of their ethnicity. So 
These crimes were essentially an outgrowth of the war that began in November 2020 that really pitted Ethiopian forces um, and their allies, including their even troops from Eritrea and the neighboring Ethiopian region of Amhara, essentially pitted them against the forces linked to the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, uh, which was once, it actually once led um, Ethiopia's coalition government. So early in the conflict, the Amhara security forces and officials gained control of Western Tigray, which has been a long, long contested area of the region. And um, essentially, they they started carrying out really brutal campaigns of ethnic cleansing against the Tigrayan communities in that area. So a lot of these abuses were hidden uh, from view. Um, The Ethiopian prime minister, Abiy Ahmed's government, had sort of imposed a lot of communication restrictions uh, throughout the region and really obstructed the efforts of any type of independent investigation or journalists or humanitarian workers. So that just makes it really difficult to, of course, verify a lot of what's going on. In the first half of 2021, there's a lot of reports that did come out um, talking about rapes and killings and mass displacement, uh, which eventually prompted uh, U.S. Secretary of State um, Anthony Blinken to to condemn the ethnic cleansing and, and really call on Ethiopian and Amara troops to to withdraw. Uh, Ethiopian authorities, however, you know, really worked to kind of seal off that area and and did not want to have a lot of communication with with any outside sources. Um, investigators from Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch uh, have continued um, to do well, as particularly in 2020 and 2021, they did a lot of reports uh, about what was going on, uh, particularly crimes against humanity and again the civilian um, displacement and a lot of countries the u.s included really pressed for a type of uh, ceasefire Uh, but obviously a lot has been going on not just you know this conflict but for decades and decades there's been a lot of conflicts going on so just to kind of give additional background information so that area the western tigray is a really really important area in northwestern Ethiopia. It's a very fertile area. It borders Sudan and Eritrea. And in the early 1990s, Ethiopia's previous government was led by the TPLF, incorporated the zone into the newly formed regional state of Tigray. And that sort of set the stage for these decade-long disputes over boundaries, self-government, identity. Some ethnic Amharas viewed these changes as sort of like an annexation, and they believed that the territory should have actually just been part of the Amhara regional state. So there was a lot of just like back and forth uh, unhappiness and unrest, and the outbreak of the war in 2020 brought a lot of these long-standing grievances out front. So you had a lot of you know officials from both sides saying, "No, this is our land. This is our area, etc." And before you know it, a lot of war crimes and ethnic cleansing were underway. So you had a lot of uh, Ethiopian federal forces started shelling villages, uh, which obviously impacted a lot of children and and, and the civilians. And um, in the months that followed the the conflict starting in 2020, uh, a lot of uh, the the really 
uh, scary part of it too, which uh, part of this did make make national news, is the famine. So a lot of the troops ended up pillaging the Tigrayan crops and livestock and, and looted a lot of the homes. So people obviously relied on that for, for food. And so this kicked into into play uh, a lot of starvation for, for months and months on end. Um, forces, a lot of the, the Ethiopian and the Amhara Special Forces also uh, would break into the Tigrayan homes. Uh, a lot of the women and, and girls were sexually assaulted or sold into sexual slavery. So there's a lot of, uh, of violence and upheaval going on um, in that in that area. So essentially uh, what happened is that in late 2021, Amhara forces carried out Again, another wave of forced expulsions and killings in the area, and a lot of the remaining Tigrayans were rounded up and held in detention centers. Now, according to the United Nations, um, t- about 29,000 people um, were forcibly transferred to uh, just in November of, of 2021 alone. They were forcibly transferred out of, of the Tigray region. And again, it's really hard to know exactly, you know, the, the numbers and all of that, but um, I should mention too that on um, November second of um, twenty twenty two, Ethiopian government and regional forces from Tigray agreed to basically halt conflicts um, after nearly two years of war. And um, obviously, this is you know a really good sign. And the United Nations has stepped up, you know, sending critical aid. And of course, there's thousands of refugees and people that are displaced. So um, that's definitely good uh, that the the peace agreement was was finally put together and it's it's holding. Um, but you know, that being said, there's still millions and millions of of people, particularly in the Tigray region, that have been largely deprived of food, of medicine, of essential care. They're still dealing with the effects of, of violence, of, of rape, of torture, of displacement. So even though the peace treaty is, is in place, uh, organizations, again, the UN, Human Rights Watch, etc., uh, are sending trucks of supplies and, and food and all that. So we'll have to uh, stay tuned and see, see what happens with that moving forward. The other very recent conflict I wanted to touch on is Myanmar. So hundreds of thousands of Muslim ethnic um, groups have fled persecution in um, the state of Rakhine, which uh, really is, again, all of these conflicts, right, they never just sort of pop up. They're always kind of based on on years and years and years. Um, So essentially what happened is uh, there's long been discriminatory policies of the Myanmar's government since the 1970s. And that has really compelled hundreds of thousands of Muslims of Virginia's uh, to flee their homes um, in this predominantly Buddhist uh, country. So essentially what happened is the Virginia's were there, but were forced to move. And so many of them crossed into Bangladesh or they went to Indonesia or Malaysia and Thailand. But obviously many of them, many of the Virginia want to stay because they feel like that's their, that's their land. So... Beginning in 2017, there was sort of this this renewal of violence, and including for rape and murder and, and arson, and this really triggered a lot of them to leave. But again, a lot of a lot of them went to stay because it's their homeland. So, 
Um, first of all, who are who exactly are the Rohingya? So the Rohingya are an ethnic Muslim minority uh, who are living well. Originally, were residing in Myanmar in the Rakhine state, and they say there's about 3.5 million around the world. So that's not just in, of course, in in Myanmar. Uh, so essentially, they accounted for about a third of the population, though. So they're again not the majority, and they differ from the dominant Buddhist groups and ethnically, linguistically, religiously, etc. So the issue sort of came about when the government refused to acknowledge their citizenship, and as a result, most of the group's members had no type of legal document. Documentation, so that essentially made them stateless. And Myanmar's 1948 citizenship law was already exclusionary, so essentially they didn't really have any rights to legal legal citizenship. So until recently, Virginia had been able to register as temporary residents with identification cards, known as white cards. Um, so they at least had some type of legal standing, but this was not recognized as proof of citizenship. So in 2014, the government held a UN-backed national census. It was the first one in 30 or so years. And the Muslim minority group was initially permitted to identify as Rohingya. But after Buddhist nationalists threatened to to boycott the census, the government decided they could not register as Rohingya. They had to identify as Bengali instead. So obviously this led to a lot of unhappiness. Um, in recent years, the government forced them to start carrying some type of national uh, verification cards. Again, they were not granted citizenship, so basically they were treated as if they were foreigners. And a lot of critics on this really argued that, hey, you're de- denying them their rights and their identity, and you're treating them as second-class citizens. Well, they're not even considered citizens. So why then? So why are they fleeing Myanmar? Well, obviously... Part of it is the human human rights and not being treated equally. Uh, they the Myanmar government has effectively been discriminated against them, and not just with citizenship, but also placing restrictions on marriage, on family planning, employment, education, religion, freedom of movement, etc. So, to give an example that I read about in Amnesty International. So Rohingya couples in the northern towns of Mangda are only allowed to have two children. They also have to seek permission to marry, which many require them to essentially bribe the authorities and kind of, you know, provide pictures and, and money and all of that. And in most regions in Myanmar, in order for them to move to a new home or travel outside of their townships, they actually have to gain government approval. So there's a lot of issues that go around, obviously, with that. They just don't have the, you know, the, the freedom to, to move around. Um, and, and moreover, Rakhine State is, is Myanmar's least developed state uh, with a poverty rate of about 38 uh, I'm sorry, 78 percent um, compared to the 38 percent national. That's according to the World Bank estimates. So you have widespread poverty, poor inter- infrastructure and lack of employment, uh, really just to 
to name a few things. Um, and then on top of that, you have the conflict and, and what's, you know, considered by many to be ethnic cleansing. So clashes started breaking out in about August of 27 and 2017. And Essentially, what happened is there's a militant group um, known as ARSA, the Arakanraginya Salvation Army, and the government basically declared them as a terrorist movement. And so as soon as they started protesting and um, attacking some of the government police, then the government army started mounting a brutal campaign uh, that resulted in the destruction of hundreds and hundreds of villages and forced nearly 700,000 Virginia to leave Myanmar. At least 7,000 were killed in the first couple months of the attack, which was between August and September. And, And that's according to reports from Doctors Without Borders. And a lot of it started, again, targeting civilians and um, essentially trying to round up as many uh, civilians, Muslim, uh, civilians as they could, and um, if not killing them, then forcing them out of the country. In September 2018, the United Nations uh, did a couple reports on this, and they basically came to the conclusion, they claimed that the Myanmar government did in fact had genocidal intentions and they found in a panel that there's a clear pattern of abuse by the military which included the systematic targeting of civilians committing sexual violence promoting discriminatory rhetoric against minorities and just creating an overall climate of of really attacking and coming after after Myanmar. So a, a lot of this uh, again is something that you know has been sort of in and out of the news. Uh, I think it's sort of, you know, you can kind of find it and sort of hear a little bit about it, but it's not something that is necessarily front page. Uh, just to to kind of wrap it up and, and get more to the, you know, nowadays what's happening. So in December 2022, um, less than three weeks ago, the United Nations Security Council passed a a resolution on Myanmar. It was the first one in 74 years, Um, despite it being, well, almost two years since the the coup and the decades of atrocities by the military and all of this. But uh, the the resolution simply calls for an end to violence in the country. It also talks about the release of political prisoners, it expresses a deep concern at the, the continuing state of emergency that's been imposed by the military and obviously the grave impact on civilians. Uh, it, it also called for concrete and immediate actions to implement a peace plan and to uphold democratic institutions and, and really have some type of reconciliation. Even then, you know, well, 12 member states voted in favor. Of course, countries, some countries like Russia, China, and India abstained. Uh, interestingly enough, too, last month, the Congress, U.S. Congress, passed uh, legislation, the so-called Burma Act, as part of the National Defense 
Authorization Act, Authorization Act, sorry, and, and Biden essentially signed that into law. So the idea is to basically place sanctions on Myanmar's military, and it also designated $50 million per year for the next five years in support of their democracy movement. They also are going to be donating $220 million in humanitarian aid starting this year. Okay, so now I want to go back to the 1990s and talk about the Bosnian War and Yugoslavia. As I mentioned earlier in the show, I just got back from traveling in the Balkans and I was really inspired to, to do an episode. The 1990s was a really hard time in that area of the world. And I remember some things as a child, not the early part of the 90s, but sort of more later on in 1999 with Albania and Kosovo. Uh, So traveling around what was formerly Yugoslavia, really, I really learned a lot about what was going on. And it's always really crazy to think about, wow, this is something that happened during my lifetime, you know. So uh, it really was a really eye-opening, interesting, and educational trip. And mainly I want to focus on Bosnia. So a little bit of background on that. So in, in April of 1992, the government of the Yugoslav Republic of Bosnia-Herzegovina declared its independence from Yugoslavia. And over the next several years, Bosnian Serb forces, with the backing of the Serb-dominated Yugoslav army, perpetrated atrocious crimes against the Bosniak, the Bosnian Muslims, and Croatian civilians. And that resulted in the death of some 100,000 people. 80% of them were Bosniaks. And when it finally ended in 1995, there was all types of destruction and trauma in that area. So according to History.com, at the time, in 1992, when the conflict started, Bosnia had a population of 4 million people, and they were composed of three main ethnic groups. You had the Bosniaks, which were uh, Bosnian Muslims. They made up about 44%. You had the Serbs, which were 31%. And then you had the Croats, which were 17%. And then there's about 8% um, that were other. So elections held in the late 19 in late 1990 resulted in a coalition uh, a coalition government that was basically split between parties representing the three ethnicities and in fact they still have that today. So uh, you essentially had uh, the idea was to give every group some type of uh, a voice so they could be heard and they can make rules and all of that. Well, the Bosnian Serbs wanted to be part of a dominant Serbian state in the Balkans, the Greater Serbia. And that was kind of this idea that the Serbian separatists had long envisioned. So in early 1992, 
two days after the United States and the European community, um, that was actually precursor to the European Union, uh, they actually recognized Bosnia's independence. But Bosnian Serbs were, of course, not happy with that, and they brought their forces with the backing of the Serbian leader, Milosevic, and uh, the Serbian-dominated Yugoslav army started launching offensive um, bombardments of Bosnia's capital, Sarajevo. They also attacked a lot of Bosniak-dominated towns in eastern Bosnia, including Foka and uh, Vornik as well. So they started, as soon as, as they, their forces rolled in, they started forcibly expelling Bosniak civilians from that region in a really brutal process that um, this is actually originally where uh, ethnic cleansing started to be a term. It stemmed from this conflict. So even though Bosnian government forces, of course, tried to defend the territory, um, sometimes with the help of the Croatian army, the Bosnian Serb forces were definitely in control, and they ended up being in control of nearly three quarters of the country by uh, 1993. And they had basically set up their own uh, republic area. So most of the Bosnian Croats had also left the country, and and there's only a small bit of... uh, of them remaining in in the smaller towns. So according to history.com, several peace proposals between a Croatian and Bosniak federation and the Bosnian Serbs failed when basically the Serbs just straight up refused to give up any territory. The United Nations refused to intervene in this conflict. Uh, There was a campaign that was spearheaded by its higher commission for refugees that uh, basically was in favor of providing humanitarian aid to people that were displaced and injured victims. Uh, and I should also mention too that during this time that Sarajevo was under siege. Uh, it was under siege by the, the Bosnian Serb forces from April 5th, 1992 to February 29th, 1996. And that was the longest siege in modern European history uh, through the, the 20th century. So essentially, uh, one of the biggest uh, issues right, uh, with, with everything that was going on was, again, uh, as I mentioned, the United Nations, they essentially refused to intervene. And they did send uh, peacekeeping troops to Bosnia, but it didn't really go as planned. So by the summer of 1995, three towns in eastern Bosnia, Srebrenica, Zepa, and Gorazada, uh, remained under control of the Bosnian government. The United Nations ha- had basically declared these areas as safe havens in 1993. And so the idea was that they would be patrolled and protected by international peacekeeping forces. Now, on July 11th, 1995, however, Bosnian Serb forces advanced on Srebrenica and they overwhelmed a battalion of Dutch peacekeeping forces that were stationed there. Serbian forces subsequently separated the Bosniak civilians at Srebrenica and they put the women and the girls on buses and they sent them to Bosnian-held territory. Many of the women in that group were raped or sexually assaulted and the boys, the men and the boys who remained behind were killed immediately or they were bused to mass killing sites. People don't know the exact number, but the estimates of Bosniaks that were killed by the Serb forces range from about 7,000 to 9,000. 
So after the Bosnian Serb forces captured Zeppa that same month and they exploded a bomb in a crowded uh, Sarajevo, Sarajevo market, the international community began to sort of pay attention and they sort of began to respond a lot more forcefully to the conflict and they started to realize that the growing number of civilians that were being killed or injured. So in August 1995, after Serbs refused to comply with a United Nations ultimatum, NATO joined efforts with Bosnian and Croatian forces for about three weeks. They started bombing um, Bosnian Serb positions and they mounted an offense. And essentially, by by that time, Serbia's economy was crippling. The United Nations had placed a lot of trade sanctions. Uh, its military forces, uh, you know, with three years of, of warfare, there wasn't really a lot they could do. So Milosevic agreed to enter negotiations that October. United States sponsored peace talks in Dayton, Ohio in November of 1995 finally resulted in the creation of a federalized Bosnia uh, divided between a Croat Bosnia Federation and a Serb Republic. So as, as I said, nowadays today, if you go to Bosnia, their government is still a coalition government with um, Croats, Bosniaks, and Serbs. So what was the international response and what happened after the Dayton Agreement? So the international community did little to prevent a lot of these atrocities that were committed against Bosniaks and Croats in Bosnia. Uh, and while they were occurring, you know, obviously some people didn't know what was going on, but of course there were organizations that did. Um, that being said, uh, there was justice, or attempted justice um, after uh, a lot of what happened. So in May 1993, for example, UN Security Council created the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, or just ICTY, uh, and that took place at The Hague in, in Netherlands. This was actually, interesting enough, the first international tribunal since the Nuremberg trials in, 95, in 1945 to 46, and it was the first one to prosecute genocide, among other war crimes. So basically what happened during that time is you had uh, a lot of the Serb commanders. For example, you had Rodovan Karadzi, and then you had the Bosnian Serb military commander general uh, Ratko Mladic, who were uh, finally indicted by the ICTY for genocide and crimes against humanity. Eventually, according to United Nations, they would eventually indict 161 individuals of, of crimes committed um, during the conflict. And again, brought before another tribunal in 2002 on charges of genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes. Former leader Milosevic, who actually served as his own uh, defense lawyer, uh, he was arrested, he was in um, prison, and then he ended up actually dying uh, in prison in 2006. So uh, certainly there was not a lot that was done during the actual conflict. Um, fortunately, there was some, at least a little bit of, of justice later on after the war, but um, it's, still, it's still really, really uh, surprising when you go and you see these places and you hear what's going on and to know that 
really a lot of people didn't didn't do that much. So I definitely recommend, by the way, if you ever get a chance to go to Bosnia, uh, definitely check out the Genocide Museum and in Sarajevo, uh, take a walking tour and just continue to learn about what's going on. Uh, also in other places in the former Yugoslavian Croatia, Kosovo, really all over the Balkans, there's some really, really important and necessary history. Okay, it's time for Ask a Black Friend. So, uh, this is a bit more positive and less depressing because I know it's been a little bit of a heavy episode. So, before I left for the Balkans, I was talking to a friend of mine who is also a black woman, and she likes to travel as well. And she was asking me, well, what is it really like to be black in that area of the world? Uh, because there's really not that many black people. So, I wanted to talk a little bit about what is it like to travel as a black person in the Balkans. So, of course, no matter where you are, there's always things you can expect when traveling as a black person, right? Um, I'm really happy to know that the black travel movement is growing and there's even black travel groups on the rise. And, and being a black traveler, you know, at times it can feel like being a celebrity in a foreign country or it can feel like, you know, being, well, a penny in a sea of dimes or quarters. Um, but, you know, in my opinion, being a black traveler can definitely, you know, be more entertaining, I guess, and worrisome. I think it's, uh, again, you're starting to see more and more people of color getting out there and traveling. So I think there's a little bit of everything that's good, bad, and ugly. So my experience in the Balkans, well, earlier this year in in spring, well, I should say last year, actually, because it was in spring of 2022, I went to Albania for about five days. And unfortunately, I found that to be a challenging uh, travel experience, right? Um, definitely, you know, having, as someone that's lived in China and traveled around Asia, you, you do get used to, again, people sort of looking at you. And I had people taking my picture all the time and coming up and talking to me and and all of that. And, you know, even though it got old uh, after a while, at the same time, it was never malicious. It was always really just out of curiosity and just out of people wanting to look at you and kind of see, like, what are you like? So in that sense, you know, it really was not, uh, it wasn't that bad. But traveling around Albania, I definitely got a different vibe. A lot of it was just people looking at me as if, like, why are you here? What are you doing? What's going on? Uh, it wasn't really welcoming in my experience. Uh, I had people make certain comments to me in in English. And overall, it just wasn't what I was hoping for. Uh, so that being said, when, when we decided to go to the Balkans again for a 10-day tour, I was a little bit hesitant and I really wasn't sure what was going to to happen. But I can, you know, fortunately say that this time my experience was a lot better in uh, traveling around Serbia, Bosnia, Croatia, Montenegro, uh, Macedonia, and Bulgaria. A couple, you know, looks every now and then, but really nothing, nothing crazy. I think a lot of those areas, again, they're 
not used to a lot of international people. Uh, I think nowadays, yes, you know, it's definitely changing. It's getting a lot more um, diverse in terms of the, the people that are traveling there. But I think even, you know, 10 years ago, there just wasn't a lot of, of people. I was, you know, very surprised when I was in a supermarket in uh, Bulgaria and I saw a man, African-American man, and at first glance I thought, oh, you know, it's another another tourist. And then I heard him speak to a woman uh, that I believe was his wife in uh, what sounded to me like completely fluent uh, Bulgarian. And I thought, oh, wow, that's really, that's really great. So I think, you know, you are starting to see a bit more diversity. And as, as a result, I think people are starting to be a bit more uh, flexible, let's say, in accepting um, different cultures and, and different people. So really, really uh, positive. Again, I have to say a positive experience. This time, uh, people were, were really nice, and I would definitely go back. So, okay, it's time to end this episode. And I want to use a quote from the Iraqi human rights activist, Nadia Murad. Uh, she said, quote, when genocide is committed, it must be seen. People must look at it with open eyes, not minimize its impact, end quote. I think that's really true. Thank you so much for staying with me uh, all through 2022. And again, here we are in a new year, 2023. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.